You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're exploring avenues of activism in music. We'll revisit our conversation with Joe Talbot, the lead singer of British punk band Idols, and we're going to talk with him about how he makes music with the intent of making the world a better place. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. But first, a conversation with the drummer for one of our favorite bands, Savages, now an environmental activist, Faye Milton. That's a little bit of Faye Milton's ferocious drumming on The Answer from Savage's 2016 album, Adore Life, and we both adored that record. Mm. But uh, since that album, Savages have been silent. Uh, Faye and Savage's bassist Aisha Hassan have made some music under the 180DB moniker, and of course there was Jenny Beth's recent solo work. But today we're talking with Faye not about music, but her most ambitious project yet, Saving the Earth from Climate Disaster. In 2019, she co-founded Music Declares Emergency, a group of music industry folks calling for immediate governmental response to climate change. Faye, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to come and speak. You know, there you are, different continent, but still sitting in front of your drums. I really admire that. Yes, that's right. I've got my V-drums right behind me. (laughs) Neighbor-friendly V-drums. Yeah, you you only hear them uh, electronically through the headphones so you don't get evicted. Exactly. Yeah, good stuff. Faye, let's talk about about the activist work you've been doing. Um, And I want to start at the beginning. I've read in a couple of interviews uh, that you read one of my favorite authors of all time, Naomi Klein. Mm -hmm. uh, And it was her book, This Changes Everything. Uh, which has had a, as big an impact on the climate movement as her book about corporate globalization, No mm. Logo, had 20 years ago. Yeah, that's right. Well, the book is called This Changes Everything. And I mean, for me, it really did change everything. I read that and it's it's so well researched. It's so thorough. And it sort of calmly outlines the apocalypse that is impending, <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Not an exaggeration, right? Yeah, not an exaggeration. And it's, I, I feel like it's one of those sort of points of no return. You can't really unlearn what you've learned. It took me a few months to read, actually. It's quite heavy going. And yeah, once you've taken all of that in, you can't really sort of pretend you don't know it. So I guess the path from that point was to go into denial or to do some action. So yeah, you can tell which path I chose. Well, you know, so many musicians, and you've made this point, have... Like, yeah, I I agree, this is a huge problem. I wish we could do more. And then they step on the tour bus and drive to the airport and take the plane. I I mean, it kind of comes part and parcel. Tremendous use of power on Mm. stage and amplification and travel. And and so I think the music industry in particular has been having a, a weird time grappling with these issues. Well, yeah, definitely. And I think that's the first thing artists that puts artists off speaking out on climate is because they, first of all, they feel like hypocrites, but also they don't want to be called out for being hypocrites. So it's this kind of, but I think it's it comes from a genuine sort of feeling of, of not wanting to tell people to do something that they're not doing themselves. Um, so one thing I will say to that, first and foremost, is that it's by far the most efficient way to run things if the artist is to travel to the fans. If the fans travel to the artist, then that's absolute chaos and hundreds of thousands of times more people traveling. So um, 
that's the first thing I say to any artist worried yeah. about speaking out on climate because of their touring or anyone who's just getting their finger ready to waggle at, at artists. It's like, it's the first thing, it's the first thing you can really look at if you are part of the music industry that, that starts to demonstrate the systemic nature of the problem, which means it's not just one thing that's an issue. It's a whole system that needs to kind of work together to change basically and, and to be sort of looked at as a whole. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, here in Chicago, Lollapalooza has gotten inexplicably the okay for four days with 100,000 people a day. You know, Glastonbury, Reading, it's the same thing. Mm. And they come from all over the country. And it's hardly the bands that are the biggest offender in terms of the power usage and climate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even within, if you're touring, even per show, there's more emissions from fans traveling to the show. And that would be especially in the States because people travel by car, people travel longer distances. In the UK, it is easier to use public transport. But if you can do, if you're a fan and you want to cut down on your carbon footprint, etc., you can look into public transport, car sharing, walking to shows, maybe not going to that show that's super far away, waiting to see the band you love comes a bit closer. Yeah. You know, Faye, the issue is a really important one, but I've talked to artists back in the 90s that were aware of this issue and conscious of it. In your view, has it gotten any better since then or has it gotten worse? It sounds to me like you feel like it's gotten to the point where it's, I mean, obviously the whole planet is in dire conditions compared to where it was 30, 40 years ago. Mm. But in terms of just your industry, the music industry, I mean, how do you feel that they have addressed it, if at all? Uh, Has it been adequate? Can it get better? And if so, how? Well, what we found since we launched Music Declares Emergency is that there was a massive will within the music industry in the UK to make changes. You know, it's an industry full of creative, interesting people who read, who think, and everyone is like ready to make change. And everyone has the anxiety, that climate anxiety of, oh God, what are we heading into? And that is a will to change, but the will to change also needs action, obviously. So one of the things we're doing is trying to help coordinate and bring, you know, the music industry can be a bit competitive in some ways, but it's like bringing everyone in to just be open about what they're doing, what what they're still sort of struggling to do and start to make those changes because... You know, nobody starts off perfect. You know, nobody, every journey starts with a single step. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's where I was going with that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, this is as old as time, musicians traveling from town to town to play music, right? Mm. And obviously the model's gotten to the point where now you can climb into a plane and, you know, Mm. go to town to town. You know, that's how all the biggest bands do it. Uh, the tour bus is a is a signature now for mid-sized bands. For the mm. smaller bands, it's a van. Nobody's walking on their tours anymore. Mm. It's hard. It's uh, hard to walk down the street with yeah. a drum set, Greg. So, <laughs> short of like a revolution in transportation, in terms you know cars that don't use fuel and electricity, or whatever, as opposed mm. to uh, the way it is now. Uh, what are practical changes that can be uh, affected in the next, say, five years that would make touring more fuel efficient, more carbon-friendly, more ecology-friendly? Well, first of all, I'm going to sort of counter that question a little bit and say that one of the biggest changes we can make is to speak up and speak out on climate and and really call for change at a governmental, huge company level because that is how that that transport revolution will happen and it can happen and it's the technology's there. Um, 
it just needs to be incentivized and speeded up. So that is actually something that people can do immediately is to start, you know, talking to your fans, like talking to whoever you can about the fact we need it, that transport revolution. What can you do on a day-to-day basis? Basically, as I said earlier, it's like it's a systemic problem. There are so many issues that tie into this. And one of um, one of the really simple things you can do is to use a green rider scheme, which is you where, where a band travels, the rider, we think of that being your sort of backstage drinks and, and things like that. But it's, it's no more brown M&Ms. Brown, yeah. No brown <laughs> M&Ms. <laughs> Exactly. But it's also what you're asking the venue for sort of um, Mm. infrastructure wise. So you can have a setup. There's templates of a green rider that you can ask every venue and festival to use green energy to have water available backstage. That's, you know, drinking water that's not coming from bottles, all sorts of things you can ask for. It might not be your band that makes that difference or your your act, but it might be en masse, one by one, lots of artists doing that, then the venues will be switching to green energy, you know, if every artist is asking for that. And it's those kind of, those sort of big changes of a whole venue switching or a whole festival switching onto renewables that does need that push at the moment. What else can you do on a, on a practical level to green your touring a little? Um, route your tours more efficiently. I think this is something that needs to be thought about when you're making a record. Way ahead of touring, you need to speak to your agent and say, can we tour in a way that doesn't involve zigzagging across the place? You know, don't know unnecessary journeys. I remember we did a tour with Savages where we, we circumnavigated the whole world in under a month and it was kind of exciting, but it was also completely draining. And yeah. on, a, on a human level, you spend so much time traveling, it's not actually enjoyable. It sounds glamorous and fun, but there were moments that were deeply unglamorous and deeply unfun. Yeah, and, and you haven't seen a single place you've been. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you yeah, know. exactly. Yeah. I remember Savages pulling into uh, our old home at WBEZ, and and I mm. think you had just done laundry, and people were were like laying out their socks to dry. <laughs> that sounds about That's right. Just a, you know, instead you should have been in the uh, south of Italy and putting out the laundry <laughs> in the sun and staying have a stay for a day or three. Well, we had right. Bill McKibbins on uh, the show several years ago great. talking about this issue, and he's you know fantastic mm. author uh, and a great music fan. And he mm. made the point, Faye, and I ask you this as someone who listens to music uh, voraciously and critically, he made the point that he thought there had yet to be a fantastically motivating anthem that, mm. that captured the issue of Save the Planet Now. Mm. What do you think? Are you hearing any songs that are inspiring you? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's different things. There's songs that inspire you. And then I think the idea of an anthem is one that everyone gets behind. And I, I think that there's, I just think there might be a kind of fundamental issue with just the concept of an anthem with regards to mm. the climate issue. Partly because when we think of anthems, we think of national anthems. Everyone's yeah. got to uh, sing, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, the song. Or you think of like, <laughs> sorry, but like a kind of, Dudes in a rock band with everyone's hands in the air, and yeah, it's this I, I very know, like top down. Yeah. Or thing. feed the world. Yeah, I mean <laughs> literally, literally. <laughs> so I just think the climate issue is so much of it is about taking notes from 
native cultures, from the global south, from people who are already on the front lines dealing with these issues. And the answers are so sort of wide and multifaceted. And it's going to take everybody, really, and everyone's different. Whatever makes you special, you can bring something to help fix this this crisis you know even if you're a massive like capitalist investor that you can invest in a green way or if you're not sure just a, sure. a kid just, going to a gig you can do it i i, I want a sex pistols whether. you know you know i want to god save the queen that captures this moment <laughs> in fury and anger storm the bastille yeah I, that sounds corny as hell yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, maybe I, that. I we're, think, we're post-anthem, perhaps. I think we're post-anthem on this. Yeah, <laughs> until the anthem comes out, and then we'll... Until the, yeah, and then we'll mm. all say, we knew we needed that. <laughs> hey, who, who has thrown in uh, behind your efforts in Music Declares Emergency? Who have been the big supporters? Well, um, it, it's uh, in the music industry, we've had the three major labels in the UK, Universal, Warner, and Sony have signed up. The um, indie labels have been the biggest supporters. Beggars and Ninja Tune and Full Time Hobby have been really huge supporters. And in fact, Beggars and Ninja Tune have announced net carbon negative within two years-ish. I mean, they've mm. got both got slightly <laughs> different targets, but that's around oh. about what they're aiming for. And they announced that with us um, in April this year. And mm. then artist-wise, I always sort of rack my brain because we've got about 3,000 artists signed up. But, you know, you've got your seasoned climate fighters like Radiohead, Billie Eilish, 1975 yeah. signed up. Annie Lennox and Mick Hucknell. We've got yeah. Shabaka Hutchins. He's a huge favorite of mine. That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, because Savage mm. has only reached a certain level mm. of like of cult fandom, mm. devoted cult fandom. Here's my Savage's tattoo. You got a Savage's tattoo? I, I do, I do. Oh, my As God. a drummer, right? For a devoted cult band to have so many musicians uh, following your lead, that's mm. got to be inspiring and give you kind of a like, wow, pinch me. Yeah, I think some things you just, you're the right person in the right place at the right time to do a certain mm. thing. And the world has like brought you all of these various influences on your life and put you in a certain position and you're like, oh, okay, I'm the person who's going to have to do this then. And so you do yeah. it. And so that's that's how I feel about it. And I, I feel like it's, I mean, it's amazing having all these like amazing, huge artists who I, who I love signed up. And there's a much bigger list than I could reel off just then. It's also, it's not about me. It's, it's about right, people right, wanting right. change, really. It's about about people believing in the issues and it's it's the big swell mm. of lots of different action taking place at the same time you know Greta Thunberg Extinction Rebellion David Attenborough this whole movement's happened with loads of different people acting at the same time so yeah it's interesting because artists are you know traditionally a very willful individualist type of entity you know it's uh, it, that's the that's the nature of the beast right and mm. uh, you know collective action has been called for in things like, you know, royalty, fair royalty payments, mm. uh, you know, lowering ticket prices for concerts. And it they all fell apart. They just didn't have the, the stick-to-itiveness, you know. This seems to have a little bit of, it, it seems like a righteous issue that's bigger than music, obviously. And I guess the question, Faye, is this takes a lot of work to not only get something like this started, but the activists that I know always say the toughest part is sustaining it. Mm. How do you keep it going? Yeah. So what's your five-year plan, Faye? How are you going to keep this alive and 
It's going to be time. How do you how do you save the world, yeah, Faye? Right, exactly. Oh my God! Well, one of my, part of my five year plan is to, to to bring in the four day week. I mean, the four, we should all be doing a four day week anyway. It'd be better for the environment. It'd be better right. for our mental yeah, health. It'd be better it. for Let's our go. economy. Four day week. Yes, three-day weekend, yes. Um, I'm still working on music. I'm working on a big um, collaboration album, so that keeps me sane. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, everything moves so quickly, really, with this this whole kind of... Um, what have we got, like, nine years left to fix the problem, to get to net zero or whatever? And it's, like... In five years, we do not want to be doing the same thing, the same message, because if we if we are, we're failing. You know, if I'm still getting people to wear no music on a dead planet T-shirts, then yeah. we need to have we need to have moved forward by then. So, well, well, yeah, you know, Faye, one of the things people aren't talking about, and mm. uh, um, I, I wonder about that. Even in the the dozen interviews you've done, right? Um, uh, no one's asked about the pandemic tying in to. Uh, climate change, mm. right? Because I've read a couple of, uh, you know, the super scientific, hard to figure out articles, right? Mm. About, I mean, you know, if this came from a bat somewhere in the woods mm. that were being torn down mm. because we're stupid and we keep tearing down our, our natural resources, right? Mm. You know, this sort of thing is going to happen more and more. Did we learn that lesson? Did we also learn the lesson that, you know, you don't have to be constantly in motion using resources. You can get a lot done judiciously at home. We're all very eager at this moment mm. to be in a room celebrating live music again. Mm. But we also have learned how much we can do uh, that doesn't use any more resources than our laptop's battery. Mm. Do, you, do you think, you know, I, I, I'm not seeing those two things connected enough. Right, yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's, I don't know, when the pandemic hit, we, we sort of went a little bit quiet for a while because especially in the music industry, people had very, very urgent issues to deal with um, yeah. all, all, in all industries, I'm sure. But um, for me, it's an attitudinal thing. If you're, if you're going to be ripping down forests, if you're going to be treating animals in a disgusting way, if you're going to be treating humans who aren't respected in, in a disgusting way, then issues will arise. And it's you know, start respecting everything and everyone, and then these issues are not going to arise. I'm not going to do a big rant about not eating meat, but I mean, hugely like overproduced meat, that's been causing, you know, bird flu, swine flu, and we're lucky that that hasn't become this yeah. global pandemic. But that sort of intense farming is, you know, it's just, I mean, it's gross, really. And that's where this gross stuff comes from. The other thing, too, um, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, Faye, but there has been talk, uh, given what Jim just talked about with the COVID uh, experience and how people are treating live entertainment, and there's a lot of talk in, in other industries that depend on live events that they will become hybrid events, in, that, in other words, you know, mm. some live elements, but also a virtual element that will, you know, hey, if you want to stay at home and watch this, that's okay, you mm. know, you're going to pay, pay for that ticket. How do you feel about that development? Is that a positive thing? I mean, obviously, we as music lovers, you know, you want to be there, right? But um, from an environment standpoint, it makes some sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. But there's loads of questions around servers and digital stuff as well that I can't mm -hmm. quite, I don't have the full knowledge to answer. So it's not like doing things digitally isn't without a footprint. So if you were to walk to a gig and watch it, that's going to have probably a lower footprint than watching it from your home digitally so it's not quite 
as simple as that. I mean, I think hybrid events are, are good. I mean, I, who knows? Live music hasn't opened up here yet. And it's, I didn't watch a single live stream during yeah. the last year. It's it not the same. It doesn't really interest me. And I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to gigs opening up again. So I just don't think anyone wants live music to go away or to be replaced. And I think if you can do a hybrid event, there's all sorts of reasons why that might be useful. If people live really far away from where the event's happening, especially in the States where you've got huge distances, there's people who are differently abled and they can't get to a show or they feel panicky or unsafe in a show, then those people can enjoy the gigs. So there's loads of different reasons why that could be good. But... Um, But yeah, live music's here to stay. Dancing yeah. around in a field is, is not a huge resource sapping activity. So true. We have been talking to Faye Milton, uh, one of my favorite drummers uh, ever, and uh, a driving force behind Music Declares Emergency. Thank you, Faye. Thanks for having me. When we return, a conversation with the UK punk band Idols. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. We're back. This week, we're talking with artists about how they use their music to advocate for causes and ideals they care about. That made us think of a conversation we had a year ago with Idol's frontman, Joe Talbot. Listen as we revisit our candid chat here. You will not catch me staring at the sun. Not sucking on a dumb dumb, not turning round to run. No hallelujahs and no kingdom comes. So you will not catch me staring at the sun. That is a little bit of Grounds by Idols from their third album, Ultra Mono. Since 2017, the consensus has grown, certainly with you and I, Greg, that Idols are one of the best rock bands in the world. The group, which includes Mark Bowen, Lee Kiernan, Adam Devonshire, John Beavis, and our guest today, vocalist Joe Talbot, are overt in their intention to use the music to make the world a better place. But I read that line we just heard from Joe Talbot about not staring at the sun as a way to distinguish himself from fellow singer-activist Bono. You know, Bono really thinks music and Bono can save the world. <laughs> What Idols thinks is that by inspiring us, by giving us a soundtrack to march, to fight, to think, we can change the world. We are speaking with Joe Talbot of Idols. Joe, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks very much. How are you? We're awesome. And uh, we're loving the idea of having Idols on the show. We have been trying to nail down this interview for a couple of years, yeah. busy band, <laughs> yeah. and we're happy to have you uh, now on the third album, Ultramano. The arc of this band has been amazing since 2017, those three albums. But I know this has been a slow, steady progression for you guys, too. It, it's not like, you're not an overnight success story. What keeps a band going? Because there obviously weren't a ton of accolades for the first, you know, half of the band's career, and you and you kept climbing, and here you are. What What sort of sustained you during those years um i want and i love for music and like it's it's everything to me it's everything to us i think creating stuff it's just an imprint for you as it is for your audience like there's no disillusions of grandeur with me i am only where i am right now because of our audience not because of me 
but I made the music and the lyrics. I was feeling those things and I didn't know how to, which is why I was in a very cyclical spiral of abuse, self-abuse and outward abuse. I was not a very nice person to be around. And then I started putting things out in the world and being able to see it. For instance, a nice analogy for life is public speaking. If you've never done any public speaking, the first time you do public speaking, it's terrifying. But if you open up by talking about how nervous you are, there's an alleviation there. You, you've reflected on it in front of your audience. You tell them you're nervous, and then suddenly the nervousness dissipates. Because they can all relate. Exactly. And then you feel part of the audience. You feel a connection. And for me, I, I needed to put my feelings and my mm. turmoil out there in order to basically forgive myself and be productive at the same time. At, well, when was that period of difficulty, Joe, that you first turned to making music? Was that your early 20s or About 11 o'clock this morning. <laughs> <laughs> My mum had a stroke, a major stroke. She was paralysed down the right side. She couldn't talk. That happened when I was 16. And then maybe for 10 years, I felt sorry for myself. And I went through spirals of psychosis and abuse. And I was very lost. And then music came into my life when I started DJing at about 23. I realised how much music had played a part in my life when I started DJing because I realised how much... Music I was aware of and how much music, more importantly, I was in love with. And um, the rest is history. Obviously, along the way, self-loathing, self-deprecation, self-doubt more than anything made me listen to critics and listen to praise. As soon as I, this is what Ultramono, our last album, is about. It's about building something beyond that that is truly for yourself. In order to have true catharsis, you eradicate any motives of trying to please or appease what people think of you and instead just let things out. I wanna be loved Everybody does Well, let, let me ask you about the DJ thing before we get away from it because there oh, yeah. was an obnoxious attitude in DJ culture for a good 10 or 15 years stretch. <laughs> you know, that, that, that DJing and, and electronic music was the future. And anybody picking up one of those pieces of wood with six strings, you are a Luddite. You know, and here you are leading this ferocious and wonderful guitar band. You know, I know everybody in the group despises genre, but there are guitars. I think we can at least say a guitar band, a band with guitars. And drums and bass. Yes, yeah. Just just for conversation purposes. We don't hate genre. My point has always been that if you allow people to categorise what you do, you disallow yourself to be free of category. That's my point. Mm. Yeah. Um, we are definitely in the echelons of rock and roll, punk, post-punk, all those things. To have a conversation about music without using genre, can you imagine? It'd be crippling. It's hard to talk. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really important linguistic tool to talk about music using genre. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're being genreist, like all folk bands are the same or whatever. You know, it's just um, 
God, can you imagine if that became a, a fascist movement, genreism? <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Just like loads of garage rockers going out and beating folk artists on the street. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be quite something. That would be the last uh, frontier, I think, for uh, music. <laughs> but 20, 2020, it wouldn't surprise me, do you know what I mean? No, it's exactly. Everything else is collapsing. Why not yeah. that too? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so like the Strokes came along and introduced people like me who only listen to hip-hop to rock and roll. And they were a magic band. They were very cool and they had great songs. But the thing is, what happened is it changed the way everyone dressed and the way everyone thought about music and the way everyone played music. Suddenly, there were a lot of dudes who threw away their bootcut jeans and were getting skinny 70s-esque jeans, trying to fit in their <laughs> mum's hipster <laughs> jeans and borrowing their dad's Chuck Taylors. And not moving on stage. Exactly. Um, and looking bored. And they just got to a point where I missed that sense of danger that sense of vibrance and life in, in live music. And I wanted to inject it into that gap and start a band. Well, we were watching a band at this, this festival. It's a bit like South by Southwest in London called Camden Crawl. We watched this band at a pub called The World's End. I won't name them because I don't like saying negative stuff about people publicly unless it's to stop oppression, really. But they were so boring and bored. You know, they didn't look like they enjoyed it one bit. And I knew then mm. I wanted to start a band and show everyone just how beautiful it is and how privileged it is to be able to be on a stage where everyone's paying attention to what you're doing. It's just... The most magical thing. So I just told Dad, I was like, Dad, we're going. And he was like, why? And I was like, we're going to start a band. <laughs> right then and there. Right then and there. At, that, the, that's at the world's great. end. And then that, that was it. The rest was um, really terrible history. Like, we were awful <laughs> for about six years. But we gave ourselves the room to be terrible. Collectively, it was a really beautiful experience, like learning music. What we injected into guitar music or rock and roll was a passion for a lot of other genres and trying to inject that into it, like hip hop and jungle and techno and 50s pop music and soul. And like, we hope that you can hear those things in it. And I think that's, it's a cosmopolitan way, right? Is mm -hmm. to accept difference and, and in fact, go beyond acceptance and celebrate whatever we have left of life, which is probably mm -hmm. not a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, when you came out with the first Idols record, uh, Brutalism, 2017, and then Joy as an act of resistance soon after, Joe, I thought there is a voice built for rage and confrontation. Yeah. And yet at the same time, you were vulnerable. There was a sense of empathy uh, yeah. in that voice. And you go, those two things don't normally go together, but you found a way to, to express those two things almost simultaneously in a lot of your songs.
was that there at the beginning or was that something that you had to get to as a human being and then as a, you know, the singer in a, in a rock band? Yeah. It was a very considered dichotomy, yes. I had no idea how to sing. I had no idea how to perform. I had no idea to write a song. So I had a lot of learning to do and a lot of whiskey to drink. So <laughs> it was like this mess for years and years of me trying to keep up with myself. It's that idea of like, I was trying out lots of different voices. I was singing like Orlando from the Maccabees, or, or trying to, I couldn't sing like him at all. Uh, and then singing like Marky Smith and then singing like this and singing like this. And that's, that's what you do when you learn, right? You, you only know what you know, right? You learn from other, from experience. And I was quickly succeeding and failing at everyone else's voice until I realized <laughs> why would I try and sing like anyone else? It's just suddenly I put on my own shoes and they fit weirdly. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. to do that is confidence. And that's what Ultra Mono, our latest album is all about. It's really to empathize with yourself is to give yourself enough confidence to just be mm. and not worry about all those external voices, but also have the confidence to listen to your adversaries and those external voices, but not be affected by them enough that you change your own voice. I wanted to ask you about the uh, artistic kinship and friendship you share with Jenny Beth, formerly of Savages, now solo artist, because it seems like uh, uh, philosophically you're on the same page. Of course, you're on her new album. She uh, is, it appears on Idol's album. It seems like there's a real connection there. Make no mistake, it's all about the money. She's a massive racist. <laughs> <laughs> They are an amazing artist. Jenny Beth is incredible, a powerful figure. And I learned a lot from Jenny Beth's performance live. It's like watching Nick Cave, you know? Jenny Beth, mm -hmm. Nick Cave, Nadine Shah, Anna Calvi. Mm -hmm. There's certain artists that carry a macabre, sinister force that is also welcoming. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're enthralled by their danger. It's commitment. You're putting 110% of yourself on that stage. Yeah. And you do that as well. And here we are in this dreadful time where you can't do that. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes from 190 shows or something, 200 last year, right? Yeah, to, yeah. To zero in 2020, you know? That's, yeah, that's got to be mean, a shock. Do you know what? Everyone needed a break. From my, it's a lot of show, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah, I, d I, d I don't think it matters really whether we play or not right now. I think there's more important things to worry about. Sure. What we are doing is we're, we're definitely acknowledging our privilege. We're at the point of gratitude because we are lucky. We're the lucky few. I mean, our privilege is our audience, you know, and we're, we're going to give them as much as we can in a in a beautiful way as possible. You know, Greg and I feel the same way about this radio show podcast. You're right. People are literally dying 
uh, and suffering uh, beyond uh, imagination right now. And here we are talking about art. But I think, you know, art is what will get us through. There's no point in downplaying how important creative thinking is, how scared it makes the oppressive governments. And the reason for that is it, it gives you a sense of freedom that doesn't rely on monetary wants or need. It just makes you feel connected to a world. So yes, in these times of turmoil, if you can, pick up your tools and make beautiful art for people to use as a sounding board, escape, mm. punch bag, whatever it is they need. Music and art is an important thing, especially in times of turmoil. When we return, we're going to talk more with Joe Talbot of the UK band Idols. Plus, Jim's going to add a song to the Desert Island jukebox. Greg, uh, you know, as the West Coast begins to melt (laughs) with these record-breaking temperatures, I'm going to talk about how the time is running out in a song. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are talking with Joe Talbot, lead vocalist of the British punk band Idols. You know, the day we interviewed Joe was the one-year anniversary of Daniel Johnston's death, that uh, singer-songwriter much loved by a devoted following. But it wasn't the only reason he came up in our conversation. This album, Ultramano, it builds to that song, Danka. And quoting that Daniel Johnston... Uh, lyric true love will find you in the end again something that you wouldn't expect to be coming from the lips of a person who looks like that and sings like that yeah and and there it is you know it's kind of like you're ripping your heart open and showing it to the world, you know? Yeah. Uh, and as, as Daniel Johnston did. True love will find you in the end. You'll find out just who was your friend. In some way, when you were talking about Jenny Beth and Nick Cave, it's almost like Daniel is like the 180-degree polar opposite. You know, it's like he's not theatrical in any sense, right? I mean, it's just kind of like, it's just vulnerability. That That's all it is. It's not an act at all. Exactly, yeah. I couldn't have put it better myself. Oh, actually, I can. I'll try. Um, <laughs> no, no. We're counting on that, Joe. No, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm only joking. No, it, it, what I mean is, it's exactly right. It's vulnerability. Like, one of the things that, like, Daniel Johnson has... Is, is both a gift and a curse, as I said it earlier today, actually. It's like like he was obviously suffering greatly with mental health issues, but at the same time, his naivety and his vulnerability was absolutely catastrophically moving as a human being. There, he is unquestionably bare on those songs. One of the things that I... I've tried to do with with my lyrics is that sense of vulnerability. It disarms people. If you make yourself vulnerable, it's a bartering tool. It's saying, look, I'm not on the attack. Here's, here's me mm. open. Come in. Welcome. Let's have a conversation. 
it's not always easy being vulnerable and you don't always get the results you want. But do you know what? You'll find peace that way. And I just think with the violence of our tone, it's important to, mm-hmm. to speak of vulnerability with a violent tone because mm. there's nothing meek or weak or soft about vulnerability. Vulnerability is a strength and it's a bold move. It's a moving gesture to make yourself vulnerable and just mm-hmm. to use joy as an act of resistance. Mm-hmm. All right, but let me let me play devil's advocate, Joe. Uh, the world sometimes claps back in a negative way. One of the distressing things about the many Daniel Johnston shows I saw was people cheering him to sometimes melt down on stage. He could be mercurial. He could have fits of anger and and depression and just freakouts, right? Mm-hmm. And there were people who did that, hoping he would go off the rails. In Idol's case, you know, I have all these people saying these guys are talking a good game, but they're not authentic. They're not real, man. They're not working class. They don't. What are they doing to fight oppression? It is hard to stay vulnerable as an artist in the face of cynicism. Is cynicism an awful force in the world? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, those hypothetical you were just talking about are right. We're not working class. We are middle class. Well, actually, that's not true. Three of us are middle class, two are working class. But neither is a validity thing. You know, my lyrics around empathy, compassion, addiction, grief, loss, anything that I talk about is for me and my existential growth. It then becomes the audiences, they own it, they regurgitate it and they tell me what it means, which is fine. I mean, authenticity, I, I believe me, yeah. <laughs> I think anybody who's seen Idols live well, has to say. believe. The like, same with Savages, same with Iggy Pop, yeah. right? You know, or Nick Cave. Yeah. I mean, there's a real easy thing to happen with our music, which is that people think that I'm virtue signaling or judging people for not living their life like I live my life. Or, I mean, I don't know how to make this clearer. I was a piece of shit when I was younger. And I am out of that now. And I have a lot of shame and regret and I'm progressing and I want to progress as a father and a musician. But what I talk about is imperfection and the celebration of imperfection and the celebration of difference through empathy, Mm. love, and a want for an egalitarian future. That is to say, as a middle-class man with more money than some, I'm happy to share it if my government stops spending it on killing brown people. Mm-hmm. That's not a class thing. That's just me not wanting my government to spend my taxes on murdering brown children or your government to stop spending their money on murdering brown children. An egalitarian want for a future where everyone has equal opportunity for an education, for jobs, for health care. It's just things that I'm concerned about. And like... If some, every now and again, someone turns around and says, you don't know what suffering is, you're middle class. 
let them, you know, let them. Mm-hmm. But I go to bed at night, every night at peace with what I've done because I'm not lying. We have been talking to Joe Talbot, the vocalist of Idols. The new album is Ultra Mono. Whatever. Joe, we could just talk to you for hours, man. Yeah, I've, I've had a day of interviews and <laughs> I've really enjoyed this. Genuinely, thank you. Well, thank you for coming on Sound Opinions. Yeah, good vibes. Do you have thoughts on idols? Let us know in our Facebook discussion group on Patreon or leave a voice message on soundopinions.org. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a track we cannot live without. Uh, Jim, it's your turn this week. Well, Greg, you know, it seemed like I really had to choose a, uh, a song this week uh, in regards to activism to get people inspired. You know, Greg, we had uh, Bill McKibben on, as I was mentioning when we were talking to Faye, the great climate science writer, and he was complaining, you know, hundreds of episodes ago that we didn't have an anthem. And you and Faye poo-pooed me, okay? But I don't know, man. I think about uh, your gal Mavis Staples and Curtis Mayfield singing songs that inspired people to march for civil rights, you know? I think about... uh, Bob Marley's Get Up, Stand Up, or Patti Smith's People Have the Power, both of which I've played before. Well, they're they're all purpose kind of anthems, you know. I think the idea of, like, writing a song specifically, like, hey, we need to, you know, prevent climate change from ruining the planet, that may be a little corny. But the whole yeah, idea of standing I, up and, I, and making people wake up to it is, well, uh, I know, is a good one. I know, you know, and there's always uh, public enemies fight the power. But, I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't uh, complain if there was another song that great tomorrow, <laughs> would you? No, not at all. I'm going to play a song I'm that, that, that is, is not quite in the anthemic uh, fight mode, but is about time running out. Uh, Michael Franti and Spearhead's an artist we've talked about before. We have loved his entire career. From the Beatniks, his very first group, the disposable heroes of hypocrisy, and now playing with Spearhead uh, for more than half a dozen albums and and twice as many years. Um, I'm going to an album he released a few years ago, 2013, All People, uh, which has a song, 1159. The idea is it is 11.59 and 59 seconds, actually a second before midnight, and we have got to move quickly or it's going to be too late. He was talking at the time uh, throughout his career, uh, advocating for peace in the Middle East has been a major issue. Uh, Obviously, civil rights and, uh, you know, before Black Lives Matter was a term. He's been doing uh, uh, songs about diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout his whole uh, career. But it, it strikes me that 1159 uh, even while it's not directly about climate change, sort of is, right? Because it is almost too late. You know, talk to the people in the Maldives, yeah. in, in the in the uh, you know Indian Ocean. They're not going to have a, a nation soon, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, you know, talk to the people at the at the poles, right? 
He was singing in this song. It's 11.59 and 59 clicks. Life's a cord plugged in. The whole world's sick. Got diseases excited. They crawled up inside us. Super stupiditis. Philosophies that divide us keep us in fear from one another. So we can't seem to recognize a brother from another mother. Um, you know, it is an issue that is global, that is about equity everywhere, and we are all stuck on this rock in space that if we <laughs> don't take action soon, uh, we're not going to have a place to live. Yeah. Right? I think 11.59 is a wake-up call, although it is a mellow and funky and seductive track, um, is uh, a wake-up call. And then we got to get inspired and, and, and fight. Uh, so, Michael Franti and Spearheads. It was 11.59 and 59 clicks. Life support plugged in. The whole world sick. Got diseases excited. They crawled up inside us. Super stupid artists. Philosophies that divide us. Keep us in fear from one another. So we can't recognize a brother from another mother. No way. We can't live this way. That's why so many people stand up and say, One Michael Franti and Spearhead from 2013, 1159. Time is running out. Mr. Cott, our time is out, but what do we have on the show next week? Uh, Jim, the big subject is subversion. You know, Kid A, Radio has very subversive 2000 album. We're going to take a look at that, and we're going to take a look at the subversive life and music of Malcolm McLaren. That's as subversive as it gets. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our intern Sol Delgadillo, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 